0: We opened our office in my mother's basement with a total of $4,000 in 1999. We moved into a small little office above a restaurant in 2000. And I worked as a waiter at the restaurant for like three years just to make ends meet. And today we have almost 200 employees, represent millions of lives, you know, hundreds of TPAs across the country, brokers, stop-loss carriers, et cetera. And what we've done is really revolutionize and empower people in employee benefit plans to actually have some control over their healthcare spend. Because I think most employers and people think that they have no control. That every year the premiums will just go up and there's nothing they could do about it. And what we're trying to show people and educate people on is there are things you can do, like we have done here at my company, to really revolutionize and change this industry for the better.
1: Everybody, and thank you for joining the Solving Healthcare podcast, where we promote innovative companies that help to positively disrupt the healthcare industry. Today, our guest is Adam Russo, CEO of the FIA Group. Adam, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me on, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here.
1: Adam, Adam I have to say, we're very blessed to have you as a guest. As I know your firm has been instrumental in driving value for many employers, TPAs, and what I would say is managing cost through compliance. I'll start out with your bio, then we'll talk about the FIA Group services you offer and problems you try to solve. Does that sound good for you? Yeah,
0: don't go nuts on the bio. I mean, it's a long one you got there, so, you know. Uh,
1: just cut me off. A little when, crazy. Yeah, cut me off when he gets too thick. <laughs> All right. All right. Adam Russo is the co founder and chief executive officer of the FIA Group, an experienced provider of healthcare cost containment techniques, offering comprehensive claims recovery, plan document, and consulting services designed to control health care costs and protect plan assets. His practice represents employers, plan fiduciary, third party administrators, and carriers in employment and employee benefits matters throughout the United States. Adam obtained his JD from the Suffolk University Law School and master's degree in finance from the Frank Sawyer School of Management at Suffolk University in Boston. Adam and his wife Kelly have four wonderful children, if that's not enough. He's also a huge fan of the Cleveland Indians. So, that's right. Uh, yeah, based on where you live, I imagine many of your your neighbors object to you being a huge Cleveland Indians fan.
0: Yeah, they probably object to the fact that I have a huge Cleveland Indians flag in my <laughs> yard. That's, that, that's another one.
1: <laughs> yeah, okay, it's a statement. Knowing that you live in the Boston area, that uh, it certainly probably doesn't go very well.
0: That's yeah, okay. You know, it draws a couple of chuckles, you know, especially with the Red Sox being the world champions and all.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Adam, hopefully that bio, we condensed it, but hopefully it did you justice. Anything you want to add to that?
0: No, I just love what I do. I, I yep. love self-funding, and I love trying to help employers, and in particular, employees, you know, just save money on healthcare costs. So,
1: yeah, so uh, as we go through the the dialogue, one of the things I always want to make sure comes out is what is your why? Uh, what is what is what drives yep. you to get up every day and do what you do? So could you... Could you I don't know if you want to talk about that first or what the FIA group does, but I'll leave that up to you.
0: Yeah, I can start off with the why, it's fine. So uh, it, it really ties into the whole FIA group story, to be honest with you. So I grew up, um, I was raised by a single mom, my sister and I, in the inner city of Boston in a neighborhood called Dorchester. So you know, growing up, we really didn't have much, I mean, oftentimes we had nothing. So I always knew like, every dollar that my mom had in her pocket, you know, we had to stretch that money as far as we could because you know, she worked three jobs. To be honest, I have no idea how she actually did what she did now that I'm a father as well. And, you know, it's just amazing to me what she, what she was able to accomplish. So it was always in my mind, regardless of what I ever wanted to do as an attorney, that at the end of the day, the why, the reason why I do what I do is basically just to help people like her. So even though my company represents, you know, tens, I would say my company currently represents over 10 million employee lives nationwide. Wow. And that's what I like to focus on. Yeah. 10 million. And what i tell people is I don't represent the companies. I look at myself and this company as representing those individual employees and their families, because that's who we're affecting. At the end of the day, when you design a plan, and that plan has premium increases by 20%, 10%, whatever it might be, deductible increases year over year, that's not necessarily hurting the employer as much as, as it really hurts those employees. Those are the people, these people are the ones that I'm thinking about every day when I wake up. I mean, to be honest, like I don't have to be here. I mean, I'm, I'm very blessed the fact that my company has done so well. Mm -hmm. I just love what I do. And I really truly feel this is my life's mission is to do whatever I can to ensure that people have access to high quality, affordable healthcare.
1: It really is a blessing to hear that because I can hear and feel the passion in your voice and what you're saying. Understanding you went from law, how did you narrow down to employee benefits?
0: Well, you know, it's, it's actually not that complicated. I mean, growing up it wasn't like i was like oh i'm going to be you know as a specialist when it comes to ERISA law and employee benefits you know you don't think that in college or in law school at the end of the day it's quite simple so i had to get a job and i got a job when i was in college my freshman year to working for an attorney who had a small firm that did subrogation for self-funded ERISA plans all right. and i you know answered the phones i filed i worked on cases i worked there all through college I worked there all through law school, and while I was there, while I was still in law school, my boss was looking for a salesperson. They never had a salesperson prior to that, and he asked me if I wanted to do it, and I said, sure, and, you know, this is before, you know, texting and access online. I mean, it was, you know, this was basically, I was just starting research and learning, and I went to my first SIA conference. And that's how I learned about self-funded employee benefit plans, third-party administrators, and that world. That's the only world I ever actually knew anything about. And I I did really well at my job at the time. So while I was working there, I still realized, I'm like, you know, I'm really good at this, but I'm still being held back because all the ideas I had, for example, how come no subrogation company actually looks at the plan documents to see if they can make them better? The reporting wasn't as good as it should be. All the things that I thought actual employers and employees needed to know more about their health insurance costs wasn't being offered by not only my company that I was working at, but by any other vendor in the industry. So at the age of 26, I decided that maybe I should just try this on my own. I mean, again, if I knew everything I know now, I mean, I knew nothing then. I thought I knew everything, but I knew nothing. But I had 2000 bucks. I called my best friend, Mike Bronco, who went to college with me. And I knew that he was a really good salesperson. And I knew that he was a really hard worker. And I gave him this idea. We went camping up to New Hampshire. And I said, hey, I have an idea for a company. What do you think? And he joined me. We opened our office in my mother's basement with a total of $4,000 in 1999. We moved into a small little office above a restaurant in 2000. And I worked as a waiter at the restaurant for like three years just to make ends meet. And today, we have almost 200 employees. Like I said before, we represent millions of lives, Mm -hmm. you know, hundreds of TPAs across the country, brokers, stop-loss carriers, et cetera. And what we've done is really revolutionize and empower people in employee benefit plans to actually have some control over their healthcare spend. Because I think most employers and people think that they have no control that every year the premiums will just go up and there's nothing they could do about it. And what we're trying to show people and educate people on is, there are things you can do, like we have done here at my company, to really revolutionize and change this industry for the better.
1: Well, Adam, knowing that when your company started out, you cut your teeth on subrogation and revolutionized how that is done. So I'd like to have you give a brief overview of the, the entire scope of what FIA does. And then maybe talk through each of those elements for how you help individuals and how you help plan sponsors.
0: Awesome. To give you an example, so obviously when we started the company, I never envisioned that FIA would become what it is today. Right. You know, I I assumed that we would just be a subrogation firm, you know, until the day we close shop. So the first thing I did, though, was like I mentioned before, no subrogation firm actually looked at the subrogation language within the terms of the plan document to see if it was even good enough if it was even legal, you know, if it was strong. And I said, why don't they do that? So what we did, and we were the first to do it, was we told clients and prospects, hey, we'll actually update and revise your subrogation language at no cost. At the end of the day, if the language is better, then you have more recovery rights, the plan will recover more money, and obviously FIA, my company, will make more money in revenue. So we started doing that. Well, if you make changes to the subrogation section of a plan, you inevitably make changes to the coordination of benefits section, definitions, exclusion language. It got to a point where we were basically revising half the plan documents. So by 2004, we realized, hey, why don't we just start updating the entire plan and offering better plan document solutions? Because what we saw was noncompliance, poorly written documents, you know, documents that basically on page 10 said one thing and on page 30 said another. and To be honest, when you're looking at it from a member standpoint, if they were to read one of these documents, they would really have no idea what's covered, what's not, and why. So that's how we got into the plan design business and all the consulting stuff that we do, because those same clients that would come to us with subrogation issues, well, they would then call us and ask us, hey, do you guys think this claim is even payable? Is it excluded? Is there an eligibility issue? So our clients basically forced us to become a consulting company. Which we are today. And today, what we basically do, and I keep it to four simple words learn, plan, save, protect. We help educate the employers, the industry. We plan, meaning we design the plan documents, help revise them to make it that employees are not only patients of healthcare, but consumers of healthcare. We save because we actually look at the claims data. Most people, most employers, they know every single thing about their expenses every line item except for health insurance when it comes to health insurance they're clueless they have no idea what surgeries cost they have no idea what their current employees are actually costing them they just assume that every year that number is going to go up by five ten percent so what we've done with our data analytics and our i.t prowess we've actually have been, have the ability to tell you a story based on the actual claims history and data that we are supplied with and last but not least, we protect plans by having the ability to offer a fiduciary service that takes on the fiduciary role for the self-funded employer when it comes to a final level claim appeal. Because at the end of the day, those claims, those big claims, those large hospital claims that are being appealed by a facility, those are the ones that put the plan at most risk. What most people do what most employers don't realize is that they are a fiduciary when you're self-funded. You have a duty to be prudent with plan assets and to protect those assets. And that's one thing that we don't hear in Washington or from any perspective, to be honest, is the fact that everything is about giving everyone access to health insurance. No one is focused on what are we going to do to make sure that people can actually afford health care. And that's where we come in.
1: And then in that last part on PACE, understanding that uh within a traditional health insurance plan where you have a network and you have relationship contractual relationships with a hospital, it's the underpinnings of those relationships. So that when somebody goes to XYZ hospital and they're touched by non-contracted providers, not only does that expose the plan, but it also exposes the individual. So yeah, so that pace process of, of defense and support, it not only supports the plan, it supports the individual as well. Is that correct?
0: And of course, and that's the key here. So when you look at it, there is so much fraud out there. There There's so much overcharging, overbilling. What we try to do is basically contain all that. And the reason why we came up with the Pace product, the fiduciary product in the first place was, our brokers, broker clients, Mm -hmm. PPAs, employers, Mm -hmm. stop loss carriers, they would all be contacting us on a claim situation, and basically saying, hey, Fia, what do you think we should do here? And what we said to ourselves was, you know what, why not, instead of just advising people what they should do, why don't we also take on that risk? Because we feel so confident, based on our analytics, based on our clinical work, based on, a, based on our legal work, that we can ensure that what we're doing, what the plan is doing, is prudent, it's doing right by the employee, it's doing right by the plan. And that, like I said before, overall, what it's doing is, reducing the overall cost of healthcare, which is of utmost importance to our organization.
1: Now, are you taking a fiduciary position or are you just helping the plan be a better fiduciary?
0: We are taking a fiduciary position on final level claim appeals.
1: Can you explain why that's a big deal?
0: Yeah, because at the end of the day, when you're a plan sponsor, Mm -hmm. if you make the wrong decision, so let me give you an example. You have a $300,000 claim that comes in Mm -hmm. and it's for... You know a cancer patient so let's say it's dependent of one of the employees and part of that particular procedure or part of the solution or the treatment method for that particular person's cancer might be experimental or investigational so as you know in many plan documents if it's experimental or, or investigational it's not covered by the plan and a stop-loss carrier definitely won't reimburse that mm-hmm. so in those situations most plan sponsors, most employers don't feel comfortable making that decision, I get it. I mean, you work with that particular individual, that's their child. The last thing you wanna do is know that you're making that decision that's gonna affect that child's life. Yeah,
1: and correct me if I'm wrong, but most like a traditional uh, carrier relationship, their fiduciary language kind of ends at that point where they say, hey, you're, you're really uh, responsible for these last decisions. And what I'm hearing you say is, you guys will take that risk uh, of being a fiduciary with that plan sponsor. Am I saying that correctly?
0: You are saying it exactly right. So that's what happens. What people don't realize is they are on the hook. Mm-hmm. They have that risk, and they're not aware of it. And the reality is appeals are going up. As healthcare costs continue to rise, as hospital bills, you know, facility charges keep going up, there is more and more pressure to contain those costs. So more and more carriers are now denying at least part portion of or all of a particular claim. And that's, what's causing the issues. That's what's causing the disputes. So what's happened in so, for so many years now is a plan will pay a particular claim. The stop loss carriers have a duty to obviously reimburse claims that are supposed to be payable under the plan. Well, sometimes these claims should not have been paid or at right. least that's the feeling according to the stop loss carrier. And then what happens? Now you have an employer who thinks they have protection on any claim over $50,000, for example, and they're left holding the bag. They have no protection. There is no reimbursement from the carrier. So that particular plan now, and their broker, says, huh, this this self-funding thing isn't for me. I'm just gonna go back to traditional fully insured. I'm gonna go back to the traditional carrier, and that is what hurts our industry. So by taking on this role, by adding this service, we're ensuring that self-funding continues to flourish, we're ensuring that plans are protected, that, those, that the, their employees are protected and have access to services that they need. And at the end of the day, what we have noticed is for the first time ever, in my opinion, we're starting to see a transition. We're seeing that employers are finally realizing that they can control their health care spend. They don't have to automatically have a 10 15% premium increase. Here's what the scary thing is. Well, we, you know, we design benefit plans, we write them, we revise them, amend them, whatever it might be, so we see the schedule of benefits, we see what's covered and what's not. Deductibles have increased tremendously. So what is happening is, the industry is basically saying, okay, we can't keep having these premium increases every year, right? I mean, eventually, someone's gonna say, yeah, this is nuts, I can't afford this. So what happens is, they just pass more of the expense on to the employees. So instead of having a $500 deductible, now it's a $2,000 deductible. And these deductibles are just not affordable by your everyday employee. So they have kids, dependents who are sick, who need treatment. So instead of actually getting the treatment because they can't afford to pay those deductibles and co-pays, they go untreated. And then they get worse. So then, then they end up being hospitalized, which ends up making the cost of healthcare even higher. And that's what we're trying to stop here at FIA. We don't think that's the solution. We don't think the only solution available to the industry is to keep increasing premiums, co-pays, and deductibles. There's got to be a better solution and that's what we offer.
1: I agree with you totally, Adam. And and what I would say is one one of the points you made about uh, plan sponsors having a bad experience and just jumping back into a traditional fully insured role Um, You know as well as I do that there is an incredible amount of value and and I'll just call it unbundling. taking Innovative companies and piecing them together making sure you have right the right handoff So a company that can help steer to the right place of service at the right time Um, With that being said the unbundling process certainly increases the complexity of plan compliance and so having a company like yours uh, that is one working with the employer to say let me review your plan documents and make sure they're written correctly in the most defensible position for you. Let's review that annually, maybe maybe it's or more frequently than that. But having that level of jurisdiction, um, can you can you affirm and talk a little bit about um, from a thirty thousand foot level why that's important to have a company like yours that isn't necessarily part of a brokerage team or part of a carrier team? So
0: great point great question so here's what i'll tell you the problem with self-funding that i see and again i'm the chairman of the board of you know directors at SIA, so i'm talking from an industry perspective not my company perspective right the problem with self-insurance is really simple it's not easy there's no easy button (laughs) so what it's not
1: and what people
0: what what people see so let's say they're fully insured And it's easy, right? You just, you know, every year you just, you know, you pay your premiums, you pay your premiums every month, whatever it might be, and it's hands off. You don't design the plan, simple.
1: And Adam, I would say that if you get to the easy part of self funding, chances are good you're getting ripped off somewhere.
0: Exactly. So what people hear is, oh, self funding. I heard I could save money by being self funded. So they jump in, Mm -hmm. but they jump in not knowing that it's not easy. They don't realize that. There are so many options. There are so many moving parts. There are so many tentacles, as I like to say, involved that if you don't know what you're doing or if you don't have the right advice, it will be a disaster. That's the bottom line.
1: Or if you jump in with the exact same suit that you had on when you were fully insured, so the same chassis, uh, you're really not doing yourself a favor by getting into the – what I would just call the – even though it is complicated and it is is a challenge – there's so many more benefits of being self-funded when you empower that toolbox that you have.
0: So it's, it's funny you bring that up because there are, in my mind, there are three levels of self-funding right. and more than 50% of employers that self-fund are in what I call the GED or high school equivalent of self-funding. Meaning <laughs> there is no difference between how they actually ran their plan when they were fully insured versus how they run their plan out they're self-funded. The only difference is instead of paying a premium, they're paying all claims, but they still have no control over anything. Right. So only the funding mechanism has changed. And most self-funded employers fit that chassis. And that, those are the employers that we're trying to convince, hey, you only took step one. This isn't gonna make a difference. Level two is what I called you know, the, 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 let's say, college graduate, the BA or BS level of self-funding. Where now, maybe you work with the TPA. But you're still tied into, you're not really designing your own plan. You have access to the data, but you're not really looking at it. So you can do some things, and I would say about 25% of the industry is that, in that area, where they actually have control, but don't really take full, full advantage of that control that they have. The highest level, the graduate you know, level, the doctorate level, is the type of plan that we have. The type of plan that we try to get everyone to be, to emulate. And that is where you really realize that you are empowered, that you have control of your health design, that you can incentivize your employees to actually become consumers of healthcare. Think about this. You know, my wife was able to buy our TV in our living room. She went online. She was able to look at, you know, 20 different televisions, look at their ratings, look at how much they cost, look at the quality metrics, look at the reviews. And she was able to make a decision on which TV to buy within five minutes. But when she picked, when she chose the pediatrician to take care of our kids, and I have four kids, the oldest being six, she didn't go online. Basically, she made that decision because a friend of hers said this doctor's a good guy. He's got a nice fish tank in his office. I mean, that's the difference. People don't, people at every other aspect of your life, you use the market. You use you actually look at options.
1: You're right. a consumer.
0: You look at choices. But when it comes to healthcare, you don't. And I almost think we're almost brainwashed as an industry to think, well, that's the way it's always been and that's the way it should be.
1: Well, not only that, Adam, it's like if, if you're, let's just say your wife went to a network directory or something like that or ask a friend. Right. Um, that, that, that may not be necessarily an indication of quality. It's just an indication of a contractual relationship. Um, but I would also say that my experience is that most folks will ask their doctors and their doctors are all e- as equally. Well, I shouldn't say it a hundred percent, but you know what I mean? There's a lot of equally misinformed doctors and they're going to refer people to other doctors based on what they know, not necessarily are they the right doctor for whatever it is that ails you. And I mean, so- look
0: at, look at, look at primary care. Yep. I mean, you, you, know, you go to your, you know, your primary care doctor, You make an appointment, you you wait a week or two, you're sitting in a waiting room, you see the doctor for an average of seven minutes, and if you need any work, lab work, they just refer you off. And the reason is because they don't have the time. They don't have the actual time to spend with you. In addition, there are so many treatments, there are so many ailments that you actually don't even need to go and see the doctor, but yet they make you come in because that's the only way they actually get paid. They only get paid if they actually physically see you. Mm -hmm. So- and then when they actually refer you to other specialists or lab work, they only refer you to other doctors within their own network, regardless of the charges, regardless of the price. You know, here's the bottom line. If you want to get an MRI if you go to a freestanding MRI facility, that charge might be $700. If you go into a network or a health systems MRI, that might be three, $4,000. But you don't know that. That patient has no idea until they're told, Yep, we need a check for $2,000 because you haven't made your deductible yet.
1: When you talk about the reporting back to your clients, are you taking a brokerage position or are you? what exactly are you doing to help the clients get from GED to college graduate to doctorate?
0: Great question. Pretty simple process. So we are not a brokerage firm. What well, we look at ourselves as advisors. We help people. Mm-hmm. We actually advise brokers all the time. So based on just who we are in the industry and the fact that we work with so many different organizations and so many lives, we can see where the trends are going. We actually know what's happening in the industry, I believe, before everyone else does. So typically what will happen is a broker will contact us or an administrator and they'll say, hey, I have a prospect or I have a client that wants to do some more innovative things. The first thing we do is we actually look at their current situation. So we get, we take a look at their plan document. We take a look at their employee handbook. We take a look at their administrative service agreement, depending on who they're actually working with. Because I would tell you that 95% of the innovations and service options and cost containment opportunities that we offer, 95% of those you can't even do if you're with specific carriers based right. on their agreements with you. So if you wanted to incentivize employees, can't do it. If you want to steer employees, can't do it. If you want to do a direct contract with a facility, can't do it. So the first thing we'll say to a person is, a plan is, okay, here's what the situation is. Here's where you are. This is what you can and cannot do. And then are you willing to take that next step? And I would tell you that sometimes people are. But often cases they say, well, you know, are people like, you know, this network? Like, that's fine. But then, you know, don't call me telling me that you're upset with the fact that you have a 20% increase every year. So we try to just educate people as to what their opportunities are based on the tools that they currently have, and then advise them on what those potential tools are to get them to those higher levels of self-funding. But it takes time. I mean, this is not something that we see overnight. You know, it's so funny when sometimes we'll have a broker or an employer call us and say, you know, we are right now, you know, self-funded with XYZ national network and we're thinking about going to reference-based pricing and I'm like, you realize that that's like saying I'm a far left Bernie Sanders supporter and now I'm going to vote for Trump. It's <laughs> two different worlds. You can't <laughs> jump from one to the other. There's so many steps in between that you have access to, Right. And, but people don't, in this world of social media, people don't take the time to actually research things. They go, oh, reference-based pricing is going to save you 30%. Oh, yeah, we got to do it. Instead of looking at, well, maybe we just do reference-based pricing for out-of-network claims. Maybe we don't do reference-based pricing, but we actually put language in our plan to get people to actually have a reason to look at the cost of their actual care. Mm -hmm. So that's what we try to do. We try to educate first, explain to people what situation they're in, and then let them know what the options are and go from there.
1: Well, it sounds like you in in addition to uh, consulting and educating, you call it an incubator or a repository or both of innovation, using your unique position in the marketplace, working with plan sponsors, brokers, and employers. So I, I would call that a um, either a university of FIA or something like that, where you can get folks from GED to doctorate based on crawl, walk, or run approach, um, and maybe it's just hey, we got to get you standing up first before we can actually get you to walk. Uh, it's
0: funny you say that because we actually have, you know, we create a fee university internally because of that. I mean, we get over 1,000 emails a month that just go to in one email called PGC referral at pgcreferralatfeagroup.com, 1,000. Wow. And every month we analyze those requests. And it's funny how many people are asking the same, is- same question because the same issues keep popping up. One particular carrier is doing a certain thing. So we see those trends. And based on these questions, we then educate our own staff, and they come up with solutions that we can utilize before these little individual issues affect the entire industry rather than just this one client. So we built our own VA university in-house, and that's how we train our people. That's how they're promoted. That's how they move up. And our goal is that we have individuals here that basically can answer any and all questions related to self-funding from establishing the plan to what vendors to utilize. I mean, what vendors to utilize is huge. You use the wrong vendor for the wrong reason, and you're done. Mm-hmm. So what we're trying to do is create success stories. The more success stories that we can create in self-funding, the better our business will be. So think about this. You know, people always said, you know, why do you guys spend so much time, you know, with in regard in working with SIA, working with HCAA, working with SPBA, all these things. Why? And I go, well, because if the industry grows, we'll grow. If I have a TPA client with 30,000 employee lives and I help them with their RFPs, we help them with their service offerings, we help them engage with their potential clients, that same TPA that had 30,000 lives, next year will have 50. That means I've grown by 20,000 lives. Mm-hmm. So by helping the industry be better salespeople, by helping the industry do a better job of saving money and protecting plant assets, we inevitably grow as well. And that is something that I believed 20 years ago, it's something that I believe now. And that's why so many people at FIA, Ron Peck, Tim Callender, Jason Davis, Jen McCormick, so many people at our organization are involved in our national industry organization.
1: You talked a little bit about reference-based pricing. Can you tell us what that means to you in your world? What is reference-based pricing?
0: I mean, reference-based pricing is just simply a way of paying claims. Mm -hmm. Right. It's a different way of paying. You have a reference point. Be, you know typically being Medicare right. and that's how you would pay a claim versus a discount from a bill charge from a facility, but what people don't realize is reference based pricing there is no one definition it depends on the vendor you work with. I mean there are two camps in RBP you know there are some vendors that have a scorched earth mentality where you pay what you pay and that's it you know litigate, right. et cetera. There's the other camp that says we're going to pay what we want what we should pay based on the terms of the plan, but then we'll Work with facilities, we'll try to do direct contracting, we'll try to have more of an amicable relationship. So, depending on which vendor you work with, you have a very different experience. It also depends on how much you're actually paying. Reimbursing a hospital 50% above Medicare is very different than reimbursing a hospital 10% above Medicare. There's a different noise level, balanced bill level. So, what I tell people is before you jump in, understand the different vendors out there. Understand your options. Understand who has the right to make those claim decisions. And then at the end of the day, what effect that will have on your employee population. Because what I, as an owner of a company, as an entrepreneur, and as someone that actually, I care about my employees and their welfare. And I believe that most employers feel the same, especially in our world. In our world, the average self-funded plan in the TPA world might have a couple hundred lives. Those employers know their employees. They hang out with them. They have lunch with them. They socialize with them. A lot of them are family members. They do care about their welfare. So it isn't like, you know, these large companies that, you know, you don't know who who your employees are and it's just, you know, it's just an expense, right? It's a a line item on an expense, you know, what your employee costs. And because we're in a very unique situation in the self-funding world when it comes to TPAs, it's very important that employers understand not only the benefits of reference-based pricing, for what the potential roadblocks are and how it might affect their particular employees and family members.
1: Uh, Understanding that reference-based pricing is purely just a way to reimburse a provider for for a set event. Um, And understanding that you're moving away from a traditional carrier contract where you're with traditional insurance company, you're paying that company to go and give a a yeoman's effort in establishing a contract with fill-in-the-blank provider, fill-in-the-blank hospital. And that may or may not be associated to any fair market rate or any basis of equity using Medicare as, as a basis for reimbursement. In addition to that, many of providers will use their uh, market position, not necessarily quality position, to affect that outcome. And so reference-based pricing, as, as I understand it, is just using Medicare as a reimbursement basis. But understanding there's a lot of points of contingency. Uh, Depending on that strike price, whether it's 20% or 50% of Medicare, uh, most of those claims will go through without a hitch. But when there is a hiccup and the provider wants more or is going to fight, that's where you come in. Um, Yep. Yeah. And many, if not all, TPAs point to you for when you have a provider that's in a litigious situation or is just demanding reconsideration. Walk through what you do. So.
0: Before I do that, I wanna mention one piece. So in my mind, reference-based pricing, like the future of it, will not look like it does today. In my opinion, as more and more providers accept payment, you basically now have direct contracts with those facilities. So you end up creating a reference-based pricing network. I mean, it still ends up being a network at the end of the day with a different pricing methodology tied to it. But for those situations where there is pushback, And we do get involved. The first thing we do is we, again, that's the beauty of this company. We don't automatically say, hey, that's a client of ours. We have to do whatever we can to make sure that their position is the one we end up with. We look at everything like Switzerland. We take a look at the claim in detail. Look at the analysis of how they came up with the payment methodology. A lot of times, the actual pricing of the claim is incorrect. So even though the plan thinks they're paying Medicare 150, they're actually paying Medicare minus 20%, or actually they've overpaid based on what their language is, depends. We look at the language in the plan. We look at what the provider is demanding, what their arguments are. Sometimes a person thinks they have reference-based pricing on a particular facility, and that facility is actually tied to some network arrangement that that plan agreed to years ago. So we look at the entire situation, And then based on that, we advise our clients where we think their rights are. Now, people have to realize there are two different rights, sets of rights. One is the plan. The second are the patients. In most cases, if the plan pays what the plan document says, the plan is protected. The plan doesn't have to worry about it. So from a standpoint of protecting the plan, defending the plan, there's nothing to defend because the plan did what it was supposed to do. But you've left the patient hanging. Right. So what we'll advise our clients is, hey, here's a situation. You have a patient who's going to be balanced billed $100,000. They obviously don't have $100,000. What do you want us to do? And that's where I get back to, do they take that hard line stance or are they willing to compromise and negotiate? And the reality is the, the law is so gray in this whole world that depending on the state, depending on the circuit, depending on the language and depending on how what's the word i'm looking for how powerful that particular facility is how needed Mm -hmm. that facility is think about it you know i'm we're lucky that i'm in boston there's like 30 hospitals within five miles but in many parts of this country if that one hospital is pushing back it might be the only hospital within 50 miles of your home so it's a very different approach to trying to deal with that facility than it would be if there are 10 hospitals within 10 miles So all that comes into play. There is no simple solution. And I think really that's why people come to us is because we understand the different dynamics. We're not just lawyers. We actually understand the business of self-funding. And that's very important because what I tell people all the time is you can find an ERISA attorney at every corner. You can find someone to write your plan document in every street. But it's one thing to be compliant. It's another thing to actually have cost containment mechanisms and incentives and have an ability to actually make your health plan not only compliant, but affordable.
1: Well, Adam, uh, and I guess to add to that, I want to make sure that that uh, as you said a couple of things, and I just want to make sure I understood what you said correctly. And using an example of a $300,000 charge at a hospital, reference-based reimbursement, let's just say is $100,000. And so the plan is doing what it should by saying, okay, based on this reference point, Hundred thousand dollars is the allowable amount. That's what we're paying. So the plan is defended. Right. But what happens is, let's just say you know it's a local hospital in Houston. Right. You know that there they they might have one of twenty hospitals to compete with. So that defense for you in terms of how you defend the plan and what I, what I'm also meant to say was within that additional two hundred thousand dollars, the hospital then needs to decide do we try to bill the patient that amount? Is that, is that correct? Exactly. And
0: so you'll have some facilities say that they'll never sue, right? They'll never take a patient to court, but what they don't tell you is that they ruin their credit. So it depends on the, but then that's where you have the main issue is okay. The plan is defended, but now what happens with this $200,000 balance bill for a patient? So, Many situations, the plan will actually pay for an attorney to represent that particular patient in court. Mm-hmm. Because think about it: if the Medicare reimbursement rate is 100 grand, I mean, sorry, if the Medicare reimbursement rate was let's say is 70,000, the plan paid 100. To me, it's like, okay, how is this hospital charging 300,000? So right. by hiring an attorney to represent the plan's in the patient's interests, you are now putting the onus back on the uh, facility to prove that their charges are reasonable in the first place. And when I brought up the whole lawsuit issue, there are so many cases that are pending out there right now that, that tie directly to that issue, but there is no answer. There is no solid answer. There's no actual case law that anyone could point to and go, yep, all we gotta pay is 100 grand. The patient is fine. It's really on a case-by-case basis, and that's what makes this industry, and the, from a legal standpoint, so interesting, yet scary, but yet exciting at the same time.
1: Well, yeah, and I just also wanted to confirm that in terms of finishing out the reference-based pricing component, understand that the plan – thats an, thats an, I wouldn't say it's easy, but that's at least the easier of the defensible piece as it pertains to working with an employer. And, uh, have, much easier. Yeah, much easier. But when it comes to the, okay, now since we moved away from a traditional network, most RVP plans or reference-based pricing plans will have you or somebody like you to say, okay – and to answer the question, how are we going to help the member and make sure that they're in no worse situation or uh, that's probably at the, the bottom, but how are they going to be in a better situation than if they were at the traditional carrier? And so I want to exactly. make sure that point, is, that point is echoed, is that you're not, in a reference-based pricing model, you're not leaving the patient hanging. You're working directly with the plan sponsor and the patient to reconcile that amount and make sure that they are protected. Is that, is that correct?
0: Exactly. Now, one important caveat to add to that. So what, hap- what, I, what we try to tell people, plans that decide to do reference-based pricing, is change your plan design. Instead of having a copay or deductible, get rid of them. Right. Get your actual employees to buy into it. Because if your employees believe strongly in it, so you tell your employee, hey, right now we're with the national carrier. We have a PPO. But you have a $5,000 family deductible. We're going to waive that. And we're going to go reference-based pricing, but you may get balanced bills. And if you do, here's the support we're going to give you. Here's the patient advocacy. Here's the defense. And if the employees buy into that, it's a much, much more opp- there's much more opportunity to be successful in a reference-based pricing situation when the employees are not informed, when they're not educated, when they don't have a difference in their deductible or their copay amounts, where everything stays the same except for the fact that now. Beginning, getting bombarded with letters and collections calls, then it's not going to work. So that's the key planning, designing the plan to make sure that the employees buy in to reference based pricing is the first thing you need to do as an employer.
1: Totally agree. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier in the, in this interview, a lack of purchasing prowess, whereas uh, employee benefits is the only part of an employer's operation where there's not a a very significant procurement process. Um, when you think about the raw materials that a company will buy, there's there's typically a very regimented process for how we buy that quality review, and it's not like they can give their employees a credit card and say, okay, just just go buy more paper or go buy more steel and do your best. Right. Benefits is the only place where you essentially give employees a blank credit card. And they, do your best and there's nothing we can do to help steer you in the direction, at least in the, I would call it, wouldn't even call it uh, the GED process. It's more of the middle school.
0: Huh. <laughs> well, to, add, to, make a, to even add to that point, right? Check this out. So you have an employer. So when their employee wants to get a raise, they have an annual review, biannual review, right. you know, peer review, self-assessment. They make employees go through the rigors and all these obstacles to get a $3,000 raise from $40,000 to $43,000. Yet that same employee could cost you $400,000 on your health plan and you have no control over it. And that's where the disconnect is. It's like you realize that your employees, if you can actually educate them and get them to make better healthcare decisions, both from a quality and cost standpoint, you will lower the cost of healthcare. You will lower that line item expense. But there's so much emphasis on every other aspect. Like you mentioned, they know the price of a nail. They know the price of gas. They know the price of all their raw materials. But I'm like, how much did it cost for that employee to have a knee replacement? No clue. And that's what's scary. And that's what needs to change. And very few employers, we're trying to get more of them, but very few employers look at healthcare expenses the same way as every other line item expense that they have.
1: Well, And what I also say with, within that model of uh, is, is I, I agree to go from traditional uh, network maker based arrangement to full reference based pricing you know there's a lot of a lot of decisions and a lot of considerations that have to go in from an employer perspective of where they are in their in their marketplace how they compete for talent but then also uh, how they can uh, the relationship that they can communicate with their employees so a lot of it has to do with culture as well um, oh yeah so understanding that 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 universe is there that What uh, a move away from a traditional uh, environment will allow you to do is have that conversation about how to access care and quality, but then also you can build in incentives that more naturally flow with how people make purchasing decisions. And that is a really big part of what I would call the either next generation or current generation of healthcare plans that uh, we have to choose from.
0: Well, just just look at this, right? Our employee benefit plan here at FIA, on page two, like literally the second page of it, has a whole page that says, here's how you can make money by saving money for the plan. Right. We do, ev- everything is focused on incentivizing employees to actually care about the overall cost. That's that's it. And if you can get people to buy into that culture, you will change healthcare at your organization. And that's why self-funding is so, it's so amazing to me. Is because the stuff that we're doing here, we beta test everything on our own employees before we offer it to the rest of the outside industry. And we've seen a massive difference. I mean, for my family, I have access to a national carrier for health benefits. And my wife, myself, and four kids, the total cost for healthcare is $440 a month. $440 a month. No deductible, no co-pays for generics, no co-pay for urgent care. We have our own direct primary care, our own um, primary care doctor, DPC, direct primary care. Who we pay on a monthly basis, paid for by the company. These are things that you could do, but like you said, it's one step at a time. And you know what? I never had that middle school level, but maybe I should add that now. That's a good idea.
1: <laughs> Just yeah, understand. That middle school girls are mean, and middle school boys are mean too. So, so uh, Adam, understanding that through, through this interview or through this dialogue, we've talked about what the FIA group does in terms of learn, plan, save, and protect. And a lot of the dialogue has been more so around how you can encompass all that with the resources that FIA brings to the table, the experience that you have, but then I would just call it the incubator that you have for for plan innovation. Um, We haven't talked about how you guys make money, so can you you walk through how you all make make money? money. Who makes money? I'm just kidding. All this is free. All this is free. <laughs> so the benevolence, the benevolence here group.
0: Well, you know, it's funny. It, it, let me tell you this, right? So building a company from $2,000, you know, and to what it is today mm-hmm. and the millions of lives we represent, you know, the most important thing to me is our employees and their families. So right. we're a very young company. Our, you know, our, we have so many employees that are in their 30s that have literally been here for over 10 years. If you listen to our podcast and stuff like that, you'll see employees that are 25 that literally started FBA when they were 15. I don't even know if that's legal to hire them at that age, but we did. But the point I'm trying to make is, obviously, in order to be able to give back and to grow and to give back to the community and to the organizations and charities that we work with, you need to make money. Right. So how we make money is pretty simple. It's pretty simple. At first, when we take a look at a plan, there is no charge. So before we start charging money, we look at the overall plan, design, we look at the experience of that particular plan and they go, all right, these are the areas where we think you can get the most bang for your buck. So we have some services like subrogation, our claim negotiation services, et cetera, where it's based on a percentage of savings. If we're able to save you X amount of dollars, we'll get paid X. So at the end of the day, you, you are better off. We make revenue, but you have saved money compared to what you're doing prior. Mm-hmm. Other services like our plan document to access, like our consulting service, our compliance services, our fiduciary services are based on a per employee per month basis. So it's a small $1 PPM fee or 50 cents PPM, depending on the situation where now that plan and that administrator or that broker or the carrier has access to fee services. So the other service that we offer are traditionally paid for on a per employee per month basis. So uh-huh. there's a set price based on the size of the employer group for our compliance services, our consulting services, plan drafting, the fiduciary protection. So basically, our clients have access to our fee of employees all the time, all encompassing, for any service or any issue related to a particular service that we offer, a flat monthly rate based on the size of that particular block of business. So you'll have a third-party administrator who literally has no internal compliance, has no internal lawyers. Mm-hmm. Everything is automatically just outsourced to FIA a flat monthly rate that's much cheaper than it would cost them to actually hire someone internally and train them. And we do that for millions of lives. And again, the key to that whole service is the fact that we now see what those issues are. And it's funny, you'll see the same issues come up over and over and over again. Like right now in our in our industry, 60% of the questions that we get relate to pharmaceuticals. 60%. Wow. What can we do about this drug expense? So you know where people are talking about reference based pricing and networks to me that's old news the new news is pbms specialty drugs purchasing drugs overseas mm-hmm. you know those are the, what can you cover not cover levels in the schedule of benefits those are the kind, types of things that we're seeing now it's everything's all about drug expense pharmaceuticals and specialty drugs
1: well, I would agree with that. And just uh, a lot of that, as, as you know, is an education, uh, an educational component as well. Uh, my wife takes a medication that, uh, uh, it's an injection, um, and we hear a lot about medical, medication safety. Well, the, the drug is manufactured in Ireland, and uh, it, it, it's not made here. And so the education is, is that you can procure the same, I call it the same damn box, because it's the same box of medication every month. And uh, you can get that in Canada, you can get it in uh, New Zealand, you can get it in any tier one country, and it's the same box, but it's typically about a third of the cost of what we pay for it.
0: Exactly, and to add to that, what we've noticed is, in my mind, the the simplest, easiest way to fix all this Mm -hmm. is again, patient education. Imagine this, we are the only industry in the country where literally every, people still use fax machines. Do you realize that? Like we have fax machines at FIA because the only way we can communicate with certain hospitals and facilities is to fax them, wow. not email, fax. Like we literally keep fax machines in the business. That's the only reason why they exist today is our industry. We mail letters. Our industry sends letters to people's houses. Who else sends letters to anyone? Nobody. People who use text notifications all the time. So imagine this. Do you realize that when a doctor prescribes you a drug, right? I'm not even talking about an expensive drug, just a regular drug, there are other options that that doctor could have prescribed to you. But people just automatically just take, hey, the doctor told me to get this cream. It's a $50 copay. I'm going to get it. People don't realize that, hey, um, you realize there's also a gel available, and that copay on that would be zero. And it's much cheaper for the plan, But people don't know it. And what people don't realize as well is that doctors, when they prescribe things to you, they don't know the cost of those drugs. They don't know what your copay is. They don't know that, oh, wait a second, you have a copay on this, but you wouldn't have a copay on that. Well, that's the same exact thing. Take this instead. That is where my company is heading. My company is heading to where people literally can get a text sent to their phone that tells them, hey, you were prescribed this drug, no problem. Please ask your doctor if this other drug, which would have no copay in your plan, is suitable for your needs. And if they call their doctor, most of the time, the doctor will say, yeah, that's fine. And it will reduce the cost of healthcare overall. Again, I know I keep belaboring the point, but it goes back to getting employees, patients to become actual consumers of healthcare, and not just be a herd of animals walking into the pen to be slaughtered. I mean, that's literally what it is right now in our industry. And that's why I'm so passionate about finding a way to change it.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I uh, did a, an interview with Al Lewis. I'm sure you know him with, with Quizify. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, he, he, to say as a, an advocate, is underscoring his passion for health literacy. And so you're absolutely echoing his sentiment about education translates to health literacy, translates to better decision-making, translates to lower cost.
0: So what we're trying to do, you, you mentioned Al Lewis. We're trying to take what Al Lewis is doing and take it to, a, I would say, not another level, but a different level, meaning getting employees to actually understand their own plan, mm-hmm. not just healthcare in general, not just the issues, mm-hmm. but what is in their actual SPD. The only time people look at their plan document is if something isn't covered. That's the mm-hmm. only time. So if you can actually have that information available via text to your phone, no different than you get a gate notification change when there's a flight. That will change the way healthcare is being delivered and change the behavior and knowledge base of the employees.
1: Yeah, I agree. It will increase the reticence of it as well. So, um, yeah. Um, so, if, yeah. I'm uh, I'm assuming you're working with Al or you're working on your own solution, but I'm sure he would give you a wealth of ideas and content on how to do that.
0: We've been fr- we've been friends and colleagues for many many years. Yeah, I hey. respect all. It's awesome.
1: Yeah. Um, so, hey, uh, with that in regards, was there something that in the conversation today that you wanted to say or a question that we didn't ask that you wanted to answer?
0: No, I guess I just wanna tell, say two things to your listening audience. One, I wanna thank you for this awesome opportunity. It means a lot to me. I know I get to ramble on sometimes and start doing stories, but I really do love what I do. I love what our company has done. And at the end of the day, what people need to realize is, what when you mentioned it earlier, what is your why, right? <laughs> Take a step back and just realize what is the problem? The problem in our industry is very simple. Health insurance costs too much. Employers are being forced to offset all these costs onto the employees. These employees have higher copays, higher deductibles than ever before. That's not right. And so, forget Washington, forget what they're trying to do nationally. At the end of the day, our purpose here at the company is to make these benefits affordable for everyday employees. Go back to my mom. Go back to that regular employee in Kansas who's working on the line, making $14 an hour, and he can't afford insulin for his kids. That's who we represent. That is our purpose of our company is to make those benefits affordable because every single American in this country deserves access to not only affordable care, which people talk about all the time, but high-quality care. And the only way that we feel that can be done is by empowering your plans to actually make a change. To look at your health care costs to look at your data and take control of that particular plan by implementing some of the things that we're talking about and i truly feel that regardless of the size of the employer every employer has the ability to do this but like you mentioned earlier it's not easy it takes work mm-hmm. but if you do it right in my opinion you can reduce your overall health care spend while offering better benefits to your employees overall and that's our goal at the end of the day.
1: So, Adam, understanding you're probably an easy man to find, but if somebody wants to get a hold of you or your company, how would they do that?
0: Our website's uh, www.fiagroup.com. Obviously, we're all over LinkedIn. You can follow us there. We have webinars every month that thousands of people dial in on. We have podcasts that we do every week, and we speak, you know, myself and about 10 other people at FIA speak at various um, conferences all across the country. Or they could just email me at arusso at feegroup.com as well.
1: Awesome. Adam, every time we talk, I always learn something from you. It is a blessing to have you on the show and a blessing to have you as a friend. So thank you so much for all that you do.
0: Hey, thank you so much for having giving me this opportunity to speak to your audience. And I appreciate what you're doing. And you know, the bottom line is there should be more people in our industry like you, because if there were, I don't think a lot of the problems that we have today, we would have. So thank you for what you're doing. And, uh, your passion
1: as well thank you. thank you thank you for listening to this episode of solving Healthcare. if you like this episode please rate it and also provide your comments if you would like to know how this service or others could fit within your organization or if you'd like to sign up for future podcast and news updates please go to www.solvinghealthcare.net and click on contact